Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Louise Hewitt. Welcome. Hello. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Oh, so am I, because this is a big one. People don't know what we're going to talk about. And I'm going to ask you very simply, what is it you do? So I am director of the Innocence Project London, um, and I'm a lecturer in law at the University of Greenwich. And by way of explanation, the Innocence Project London is a pro bono organisation where law and criminology students work alongside myself and lawyers that give their time on a pro bono basis to investigate um, the cases of alleged wrongful convictions of people who have been convicted, but who have exhausted the appeals process and are maintaining their innocence. And often those individuals are are still in prison. And why is this a pro bono work? So the concept of an innocence project started in America in 1992. And it traveled across here um, in about, I think it was 2007. Um, The Innocence Network UK was set up working out of Bristol University. And when it came across here, the idea was to get law students involved in practical learning. So practical learning in the higher education sense means students taking the theory out of the classroom and putting it into practice. So working on a real case with a real person and having to read that case, having to look at the evidence and then having to identify potential gaps in that evidence where they can then make an application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which sits at the end of the criminal justice system. So going back to your point in terms of pro bono, it was about law students giving their time to fill a gap that existed in the criminal justice system in terms of being able to work for people that had exhausted their appeal, Um, they'd either had their appeal denied or they'd gone on to have their appeal dismissed um, by the Court of Appeal. at the end of that process, there is no money for, for lawyers to, to take on those cases and, and to take them further. Some will do, and there's a lot of people out there working very hard, making applications to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, but there's a big gap in funding. And so organisations like the Innocence Project London um, work to fill that gap. And in terms of how many people are wrongfully convicted, what sort of number are we talking about? So it's very difficult in England to identify a physical number. In America, you have the registration of exonerees and every exoneration um, goes into that register. So there's an identifiable number of people that have been exonerated from being wrongfully convicted. Over here, because you're not, an individual is not exonerated, their conviction is found to be unsafe. So an unsafe conviction 
doesn't just manifest from someone being wrongfully convicted for a crime that they didn't commit. It can also manifest in a miscarriage of justice, in terms of a false confession, in terms of the criminal justice process not working the way it should. So, for example, the police don't investigate according to the legislation that they work to, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act and the various codes of practice under that. Or it it could be something else in the system that has fallen short. So there isn't a registry here of wrongful convictions or or people that have been or suffered a miscarriage of justice because they're imprisoned for a crime they didn't commit. There are two cases which have been successfully appealed via the Criminal Cases Review Commission back to the Court of Appeal, and that was carried out by my colleagues at the Cardiff Innocence Project. But it's very, very difficult to reverse that process. And people listening to this, quite rightly, will be thinking, oh, well, good. You know, if if someone's done something wrong and they've been they've been arrested and they've been charged and they're going to be convicted for that crime, then absolutely it should be difficult to reverse it. But I'd like just to, to, to put forward the thinking in terms of well, what if that person hasn't committed that crime? What if that person, for whatever reason, is wrongfully convicted, i.e. they weren't the person that committed that offence? If that happens, and it can happen to any one of us, because actually, you know, we we stand on a very fragile line on the right side of justice more often than not. And if that happens, you'd like to think that there is a mechanism in place to be able to support your friend, your family member in being able to get out of that situation. But it's the same mechanism for absolutely everybody. You have 28 days to appeal your conviction. You have to apply for leave to appeal. That leave can be denied. And at that point, if that leave is denied, often by a single judge, the only place that you have to go is make an application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. And then they make their decision based on their criteria of a real possibility that the conviction is unsafe. But that term, that small phrase, real possibility, isn't defined. So it's a movable feast in terms of what is a real possibility. And also, I just want to pick up on the words that you use about how the difference is. In America, you get exonerated. And in the UK, your conviction is found unsafe. Does that mean that you still have a record? So, no. So when your conviction is found to be unsafe, your conviction is then quashed. So with that quashing of the conviction, your any criminal record you've got will then not exist anymore in attachment to that conviction because that conviction has gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but exoneration over here is considered a moral value mm-hmm. in terms of when you exonerate someone, you're saying that they're innocent. And that idea of innocence in our criminal justice process is considered a moral value. And there's quite a lot of our academic literature on this in terms of why innocence shouldn't feature in our criminal justice system in terms of it being a moral value. And sometimes I find myself falling down on the side of of agreeing with that and thinking, well, yeah, I, I understand that process. And I understand why a criminal justice process shouldn't attribute a moral value to something, because 
innocence is subjective sometimes you know you're listening to someone saying I didn't do this I didn't do this yeah I've spoken to a number of individuals who said yeah I said that but I but I did you know I, I did that but I was playing the game because you always say you didn't do it but I think with applicants to the Innocence Project London when they say that they didn't do it and they then explain why and the students look at the evidence more often than not it's the evidence that speaks for itself that speaks volumes and actually a number of my clients have previous convictions that's not unusual I think probably you and I could have a completely different conversation about what we'd like our ideal innocent person to look like and that would be someone you know stars in their eyes all fresh and lovely and no a, a perfect background no previous convictions but often it doesn't manifest like that it doesn't you know people don't present like that and as I said a lot of my clients do have previous convictions but that doesn't mean that they committed the crime for which they are now saying look I didn't do this I just hold my hand up for these things but I absolutely didn't do this and that kind of conversation makes you listen and how do these people slip through the system Oh, it's difficult to answer that in terms of it being one answer. I think it very much depends on the crime for which they've been convicted. So, for example, we have about two or three cases at the moment where individuals have been convicted of murder under the principle of joint enterprise. So joint enterprise is not in statute, so it's not a piece of legislation, it's a common law principle, which means it's emerged through the court process. It's emerged through case law. And it's a principle whereby a secondary participant can be held equally as accountable for the actions of the principal participant. So if you think in terms of defendant one and defendant two, both of them go to commit a crime. It could be a robbery of a bank. They're both joint participants in that robbery. Or you can have someone that aids in the bets. They can be the getaway driver in that robbery. However, if defendant one and defendant two go and commit that robbery, but defendant two thinks this is a straightforward robbery, we're not going to have any violence here. However, defendant one pulls out a gun and shoots the cashier. Defendant two, in their minds, thought they were going to go and commit the robbery. However, because of the actions of defendant one, they can be, that, that second defendant can now be held accountable for that murder rather than just the robbery. So it's quite a complex area of law in terms of the police being able to present a group of people to the Crown Prosecution Service and say, you know, they're all equally liable for this offence that's happened. And we have about three cases at the moment that run on kind of that principle. So in terms of those individuals falling through the gap, it's not so much of a gap, it's so much joint enterprise is an easy, or from, in my opinion, it's an easy common law principle for people to use to scoop up individuals instead of identifying individual evidence attributed to those people and putting them through the court process. And I mean, this seems to be a little bit of a, from my perspective, 
I find this hard to understand that the criminal justice system doesn't work how I thought it would do. Is that is that a common thought process for most people? Yes, yeah, it is. I must admit, I, you know, I fell into doing this. So I came to, I suppose, academia quite late. I was 27 when I joined the University of Greenwich to do my undergraduate law degree. And I completed that and had my fourth child in the last year of that law degree. But luckily, she was a very, very good baby and slept a lot, I think, was the, is the best way I can describe it. And then I went from that and rolled straight into doing my master's, still at Greenwich. And whilst I was doing my master's, I got approached by one of the lecturers that had taught me. And um, they asked whether I wanted to um, work on the Innocence Project London. And my colleague, Christian Humble, and I ended up co-founding the project together. And after my master's, I went on to do my PhD, which, as you know, I finished earlier this year. And I've been working on the project since 2010, since it was founded. And before then, I can quite honestly say that whilst I thought I had a critical eye about the criminal justice system, I, I had no idea about how, how much it could be responsible for miscarriages of justice and how intricate this whole system was as a whole and how codependent it is on every single bit of that system working correctly. I think if you're a Twitter follower, then um, you must, you can't fail to know of, um, of uh, someone on Twitter called The Secret Barrister. Secret Barrister, Crime Girl, other, other people on Twitter will refer to the system being broken. But for me, I think it's the component parts of that system not working effectively and not working together. How that's happened, you can attribute it to funding, you can attribute it to police forces not, not talking to each other, to those, these common law principles like joint enterprise. There's lots of things you can attribute it to. But we've ended up with this system where the component parts of it don't work effectively anymore. They don't work as well as it should. And it certainly hasn't moved with society. Society has evolved. This system is just doing its stubborn best to stay where it was all these years ago. And if it wasn't for my work on the project, and my students will tell you this as well, I wouldn't have as much of an idea about how bad it was. And so why then would anyone from the general public have any idea about how bad it is unless you're unfortunate enough to be brought into it in, in terms of, um, of, of being arrested and, and being charged with something? So what is it we can do? So from a public perspective, I think it's about creating awareness that wrongful convictions happen in this country. You hear a lot about exonerations in America. Well, I certainly do. It probably doesn't filter down to the general public quite as much. But any, any viewers of America's Got Talent just this week will have seen a gentleman called Archie Williams on there. And Archie Williams spent 37 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And he used to watch America's Got Talent in prison. And he ended up auditioning he's now out of prison and he ended up auditioning this week 
on the show. And it's that all of a sudden you saw viewers watching this clip and people thinking, oh my goodness me, this is real. This happens to real people. I'd read this in a book, but I didn't think this was real. And although that's Archie, that's in America, that's a long way away, it does happen over here. And there are cases of individuals where the system hasn't worked properly, where the police have failed to carry out their investigations properly. And I say the police, I'm my own worst enemy here because I hate people that refer to the police in terms of gen that generalisation because it isn't the, the police, there isn't just one whole police force, it is individual police forces. But in the context of what I'm saying, that the, you know, the police hadn't carried out their investigation properly and they'd failed to either record an interview or actually look for the relevant piece of evidence. And that can happen to any one of us. So I think it's about, from the public perspective, it's about being aware. It's about questioning the system, when you read newspaper reports, when you hear about things happening in the news, to not just accept it and to always question it and to become more aware about that system not working as it should do. It's quite scary. I mean, what you're describing is that somebody could forget or to go through the witness list and, and not bring someone forward that would actually prove your innocence. And that's it. You could just go to prison. And you could be in in real trouble because you, you don't know what the process is. You don't know that you've got 28 days to launch an appeal. And it may even, as you mentioned earlier, it might not even be seen. So how does how are you helping people right now who you think are gonna are innocent? Yeah, I think you raise a really valid point because the that's what a lot of lawyers that I work with will say in terms of part of the reason they say the system is broken because a lot of criminal lawyers are overworked they're underpaid they turn up to police stations often unable to see their clients sometimes yet they've got another client to see in a totally different part of town I don't practice I'm a I'm an academic lawyer so I'm very very conscious of the fact that what I what I, what I talk to my students about is the ideal about what the system should work as. But I'm very aware of the fact that it doesn't work that way. And you mentioned about a witness, a, a failure of a witness maybe to turn up in court. Some of the cases or one of the cases we've got, there was a witness put forward. So the case of Conroy Smith, which I've got students working on at the moment, who was convicted under the joint enterprise principle of a murder that happened at Notting Hill Carnival quite a while ago. And in Conroy's case, the witness that was called as his alibi was unable to attend court because of his mental ill health. Now, we don't have all the documentation relating to the hearing that took place about that witness, but needless to say, he didn't turn up in court or was unable to turn up in court. The court went ahead without allowing this witness to attend at a later date and without accepting the statement this witness had made into court, which, don't get me wrong, under rules of evidence, they are entitled to do. But this alibi 
maintains his alibi to this day for Conroy in terms of they were nowhere near where this shooting took place. And this witness was with Conroy. They went to a car together and drove away from the carnival after hearing the gunshot. How did he get, how did he get named? So he was identified in the original trial. And where I say he was unable to attend court, there is a rule of evidence that allows someone's statement to be read in court under the hearsay rules. But for whatever reason, in that court process, the defence tried to adduce the hearsay statements and the court refused to allow it in because actually hearsay evidence is one of the inadmissible rules of evidence because it's not best evidence. If someone tells you something, you're repeating what they've said, basically. It's much better to have the person there in person to give their evidence. So the court doesn't necessarily like hearsay evidence. So they were well within their rights to not allow that statement into court. But nonetheless, he was there as a defence witness. He was unable to turn up for reasons that he has set out very, very clearly and that we're able to verify. And Conroy was convicted because that alibi wasn't there. And how was Conroy named in the first place? So Conroy was identified by an individual who he had known for about three years. I say, yeah, probably about two or three years before. He, Conroy came over from Jamaica about seven years before this incident took place. He's got no previous convictions. He's got a minor driving offence, I think, for which he had points on his licence. And he used to hang around with one of the individuals that identified him. And she identified him, bearing in mind they knew each other really well. They saw each other probably, you know, a few times a week. Uh, She identified him 16 months after the initial incident took place. So it took her 16 months to identify someone she saw every single day. There's a number of complexities to the case in terms of in terms of kind of her and other other situations that were running alongside the whole instance that were happening. And I'm not going to, for various reasons, I'm not going to go into too much detail here. But needless to say, for anyone listening to this, you're probably thinking, well, if they saw each other at least once or twice a week, why did it take her 16 months to identify that person whom she said she was standing right next to. So she said she's ripped close to Conroy. She saw him pull out the gun and shoot this other individual, but only identified or came forward with this information 16 months later. And it wasn't as if she only came forward with that information. She was involved in the case literally right after it happened as a witness and was spoken to as a witness. So in my mind, I'd be thinking, that doesn't add up to me. But there was limited, there was limited weight, shall we say, in the case that was attached to that. And do you have the same lawyer if you're going for appeal? Do you use the same lawyer to go through appeal or can you choose to do different ones? Or how does that whole system work there? So most people use the same lawyer only because they've been in the pro, they've been in the court, they've been listening to what the court said. And actually, in order to advance any appeal, you often will always get advice for grounds of appeal. So most people tend to stick with the same lawyer and the same barrister. However, 
you can, and there is nothing stopping an individual going to instruct a different lawyer or a different barrister for a different perspective. It's a double-edged sword. On one side, you're asking the people that were in the court with you and therefore have heard the case. So you're asking them whether there are merits on appeal. However, if they've just lost that case for you, you kind of need to roll the dice in terms of how positive they're going to be about taking it forwards. Or they could be completely equally outraged that the process has fallen, fallen down. However, if you do instruct someone different, you're getting or should be getting a different level of objectivity in terms of what happens. But a number of people, and indeed a number of the clients that come to organisations like the Innocence Project London, have got their advice from the existing barrister or the existing lawyer. It's come back negative. They've accepted it, often because, you know, they've got their legal aid funded to instruct someone else and then go through that process of, of gaining legal aid is lengthy. They've only got 28 days to make this appeal. So that process there doesn't make it or doesn't lend itself to being easy and simple for the individual that is in prison and has very limited access to everything that they need in order to advance that. Once you're in prison, you are so reliant on the people, your family, your friends being able to advance that appeal for you. And you're so reliant on whoever you instruct, being able, being willing, having the time. And they, you know, more often than not, defence lawyers have a really huge caseload that they're trying to juggle. I'm just going to remind everybody that's listening to this that you're doing all of this on a voluntary basis and it's just incredible. Yeah so um, I yeah I run I primarily I'm a lecturer so I lecture in the law of evidence um, law of torts and I teach my students at Greenwich but the majority of the work that I do on the innocence project is yeah in my own time is pro bono Um, and I work at really odd times because I take calls from a couple of the clients who are in prison that you know they call at odd times so on a Saturday or a Sunday you're my family will often find me talking to one of the clients about an aspect of the case or going through something that we're trying to pull together or something like that I wouldn't change it it's it's eye-opening it absolutely makes you think but you're dealing with real people and you want to do the best by real people and it's really difficult to maintain your innocence when you're in prison. The system in prison works for you to, you know, reflect, to accept your guilt and to move on. It doesn't work so well if you're sitting there saying, I'm innocent, I didn't do this. You know, from courses that you can get to do, prison, prisoners are able to do courses. Some of those courses are inaccessible if you're maintaining your innocence. Sometimes some prisons won't let you work if you're maintaining your innocence because you're not engaging with that process of rehabilitation, which, you know, prison rightly or wrongly is thought to be by some at least. So it's eye-opening. It's hard work. It's depressing sometimes because I feel like I'm wading through treacle and that I'm never getting anywhere or 
or achieving anything for my clients. Because the first thing people will say is, oh, how many people have you got out of prison? And you come back and you go, none. And they look at you as if to say, well, you're not very good, are you? (laughs) And then you start the conversation about how difficult it is to work in a process that was only ever envisaged to be a one-way street. And that's where you see the light bulbs going off and thinking, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, really? So as much as I love it, it's difficult, but that's where my students come in, my marvellous, fabulous students that do the work and um, just are inspired to the justice system and how they can change it. And more importantly, they believe they can. And something I heard you say earlier, you, you said that we're all on this fragile line and it is a moral-based system. It's all on subjective on moral values. I wanted you to sort of explain what that fragile line looks like. So I think what I meant by in terms of the fragile line that we tread, when before I went into law, I used to think that actually the system worked really well. If you did something wrong, you'd be arrested, you'd be charged, you'd be convicted. You deserved it. You know, you did something wrong. Not for one minute did I naively think that the system could equally work against you, even if you didn't do anything wrong. And it is a worry, especially I think for young people these days, with the joint enterprise principle hanging around, you only have to be part of a group, a large group, one person in that group does something, and there is nothing stopping a police force swooping up that group and putting them all forward and more often than not, is for the offence of murder because they all, you know, they, they won't talk, they won't say who did it, either because they're afraid of repercussions or they generally have loyalty to each other in that group. But under that principle, it's so easy to put them all forward on one charge and then before you know it, and, and there are people in prison, you know, there are, you, you, you only have to talk to some of the members of Jengba Joint Enterprise Not Guilty by Association. Uh, they have a website, they're on, they're on Twitter, they're, they're everywhere. And a lot of those mums that are members of that organisation, their sons are in prison having experienced that exact situation where, you know, they've been with friends, something's happened, they thought they've been helping the friend, they've been sticking up for the friends. And, you know, before you know it, they've been they've been pulled together and they're in prison for murder, attempted murder, robbery. Yeah. Yeah. It's shocking. It really is shocking. And it goes back to the, the sort of the point that you said, you just want to bring it to the forefront and you wanted to ask to question what it is we're reading. And I will certainly be doing that going forward because I think the importance for me that you're, you're mentioning is that people who are maintaining their innocence aren't actually being looked after. You, you need to be guilty to be looked after, and that doesn't make sense to me. It feels that way. It definitely feels that way. I mean, a couple of my clients, you know, will start working kitchens, but then something will happen. They'll have a new head of security in the prison. They'll have a new governor, and they'll be, then they'll be moved from that job and replaced with someone else who is engaged and seen to be engaging with the system because they've said, oh, yeah, you know, hands up, I'm, I'm guilty of this. And because my clients are the ones standing there saying, look, I didn't do this and maintaining their innocence, you know, they get moved off to one side. 
I, I engage with prisons and individual forces as much as I can. But in terms of individual prisons, it's sometimes really, really difficult because the Innocence Project London isn't, isn't recognised by the Law Society. It doesn't have, because we don't give advice, basically. We're not, I'm not a qualified lawyer, so I'm not qualified to give legal advice. So we help the clients make their application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Luckily for me, I work with qualified lawyers who, you know, put their legal brain, as it were, into that application and support and give their views on some of the arguments we put forward. But for a prison to correspond with someone in prison, you prisoners like to use something called Rule 39, which is protected legal correspondence. Most individual prisons, I'm lucky you know, if I get a new client in the prison, I'll try and speak to the governor, I'll email the governor, explain who we are, get their agreement to use Rule 39 and get their agreement to go in under a legal visit, which means that you're not in with members of the public, you're either in a separate room or you're going at a different time. One of my clients, that's been really, really difficult. I'm still waiting. He moved prisons. I've written to the governor, I've emailed the governor, I've emailed the head of security. I think three months, I emailed the head of security in 2019. February 2020, I get an email back from the head of security saying, we're dealing with your request. I haven't heard anything since. So it's really, it is difficult. Can, can I say if he was engaging with his guilt that it would be different? I don't know. My, from my experience, potentially, yeah. But some prisons can be obstructive or it appears to be obstructive to what we're trying to do with individuals who are in prison and maintaining their innocence. So what's the grand plan here then, Louise? What's the grand plan? Well, that's a big question. I think the grand plan is to continue working with the individual components of the criminal justice system, with the police. I would, one of the things that we're working on at the moment is trying to get some recognition that people who are making an application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission need access to their evidence in terms of whether they want DNA retesting. There needs to be some kind of conversation about that. At the moment, the policy and the case law stops that from happening. So that's something that we're looking at and we're having conversations about trying to change. And I'm not on my own there. There's other organisations that are quite keen to do that. And actually, the Criminal Cases Review Commission are quite keen to get something done on that on a case-by-case basis. I'm trying or will be trying to get some recognition from the Law Society in terms of what we do to make it slightly easier to get an agreement that we can go, we can correspond with our clients under Rule 39 and that we can visit clients whose applications we're working on under legal visits. A lot of my time, as I've just said, is taking up going to individual prisons and having these conversations, which takes up quite a a fair amount of time. And this year I've got 35 students across law and criminology working, volunteering their time to work on the project, which is the biggest number we've had. We're quite small. Other organisations, the Cardiff project's quite big. There's one at Manchester, which is equally as big. So we're quite small and there is only me running it. So in terms of all of those students, it means we can pick up some more cases and it means that I can have more lawyers who, who want to help the project and work on the project working with students. So in terms of grand plan, 
I've never had a grand plan. And I don't think, I don't think going back to the point I made that I've actually got one. But if a grand plan manifests in loving what you do, wanting to change the criminal justice system and wanting to create awareness that wrongful convictions are happening in this country, then that's my grand plan and I'll take it. So how would people get in contact with you, Lou? So they can get in contact with me, um, Innocence Project London. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. One of my lovely students set it up on Instagram as well, because whilst I'm good, I'm not that good. We've got a website and we've also got a blog site as well. And I've launched the second episode of the podcast that I do focusing on students, actually focusing on what the students do and conversations about some of the points that they raise about this way of learning about the criminal justice process that's out now on Spotify as well. So just Google Innocence Project London and either me or the project will pop up. That's fantastic. And and it's such incredible work that you're doing. And I'm hoping to raise more awareness by you coming on this podcast and just getting it out there so that people will question more about the innocent until proven guilty. It doesn't seem to be that. And we seems to be more guilty until proven innocent. And that's a hard slog. So (laughs) well done for everything you're doing. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, I think you've said it, actually, it is that whole notion of innocence until proven guilty. There's a lot of people that think it's flipped and it's the other way around. But that's probably a different topic for a totally different time. (laughs) Brilliant. So final message for the audience, Lee, what would you say about the work that you do or or just whatever message you feel appropriate to, to leave them now? Well, you inviting me to do this made me think about my why. And it was a really good moment of reflection, actually, because for me, and I I think I've said it a couple of times as we've been speaking, you know, I fell into doing this. If it wasn't for the fact that I did my law degree at Greenwich, I probably wouldn't be, I wouldn't have worked on this project and then become director of it. I wouldn't have this amazing network that I've got globally and also nationally and working with some of the amazing people that I work with, not just my students who are amazing and inspiring, but some of the other individuals and organisations that work tirelessly um, in different parts of the criminal justice system to create awareness about wrongful convictions and miscarriages of justice. So I think my reflections led me to the point that actually you don't always have to have a plan. You can seize the opportunities. You You can take the moment. You can fall into what you're doing. And that plan can literally just exist alongside you and develop alongside you until the point that you realize that it's actually crystallized and you're doing what you enjoy and you're doing something really worthwhile. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star iTunes review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of the inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.